When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. And we're joined this week by a candidate for United States Congress in Massachusetts, 8th District of Massachusetts. See, I told you I was going to screw it up. Uh, Brianna Wu. You, you've got it. You've got it. I mean, you live in Massachusetts. I do. So you should be getting with I live in, the, I believe I'm the 5th District. So. Oh, okay. I was going to ask for your vote, but now I now I can say whatever I want on the yeah, show. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Jim McGovern's my guy. Uh, just, you know. Oh, there we go. All right. Uh, so we're going to talk about the cars we dri- we're, we're driving. Me and Sam... Uh, uh, have been in media loans and Brianna, you spent your real money on real cars. <laughs> yes, I'm very tragic uh, like that. that. Yes. Doesn't sound like a tragic outcome. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we've got a couple of topics to talk about. One of them is the uh, the Supra and then uh, Lucid Motors and a couple other things that might strike our fancy. And from there, we'll have a podcast. But let's let's talk about the cars first. And so, Sam... You were in the Hyundai Veloster Turbo Ultimate. That's right. Yeah. They, um, so this is the second generation Veloster that uh, went on sale this summer. And it's, it's Hyundai's latest t- uh, stab at a, sm- a small sport coupe. And it's, it's a really good one. It's a huge step forward from the last uh, Veloster. It's interesting is, you know, they kind of kept a very similar form factor to the original Veloster, which is like this, this small shooting brake kind of uh, body style, which, you know, unlike some of their past attempts at coupes like the Tiburon and and some of the other stuff they've done, you know, where the back seat was really completely useless. The the this one, uh, the back seat is actually kind of useful because the roof line goes back almost like a tiny little station wagon. And, you know, I mean, it's not huge amount of leg room in the back, but, you know, I'm 5'11 and I was able to sit behind myself. Um, so that's that's how did right. you clone yourself so you could sit behind yourself? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a long day and I need to make stupid jokes anyway. Um, so I love it. I love it. <laughs> No, I was going to say, so like this is, it's, it's kind of a small coupe. Yeah. This, this is, this is a smaller Hyundai. It's, I, I think it's probably one of the smallest one I've ever seen them make, but it does have a back seat. It's, it's really, I mean, it's not like a K-class no, car. No, not at all. It's I mean, certainly it's a, it's one of the smaller Hyundais. I mean, yeah. It, it, it yeah. shares its, its basic platform with the, uh, the Kona, uh, the new Kona, you know, compact crossover and also the Elantra GT. So it shares a lot of bits yep. with, with those two vehicles including a multi-link rear suspension, which it has now. The the previous Veloster was on a, a twist beam axle, so it handles a lot better, rides a lot better. And, you know, one of the, you know, besides the overall shape of the body, the other thing that's, that's kind of unique about the Veloster is that it has three doors. Uh, you know, yeah. it's got one door on the driver's side and then two doors on the passenger side. 
usually when you have a small coupe like this, it's, you know, it's really hard for adults to get in the back seat. <laughs> this one, you know, you actually can get in the back seat, you know, un unlike um, the first generation Mini Clubman, which had a rear hinged half door on the passenger side. This one actually has two regular forward hinged doors. Um, so, you know, getting in the back seat, you, you do have to duck down because the, the, the way the, the window cut line comes down, it, it dips down pretty deep. So you have to, you really have to duck your head down. But once you get inside, I was, you know, I had, my head was not touching the ceiling and, you know, my, <laughs> my knees were not touching the seat in front of me. So, you know, I'd say that's a win. So, uh, but, but how tall I'm, are you? I'm five I need this for reference. Okay. I'm six foot four. So six foot two rather. So sometimes it's a little Yeah. I mean, for, 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 for you, you yeah. know, it might be a little tricky, but I mean, you, you <laughs> drive a, a two seater. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's no big deal. I do. I do. I'm used to all yeah. kinds of acrobatics. Like How are, yeah, go ahead. I was, yeah. I, uh, the, so the original Veloster had the clamshell door though, right? Like that mini that you're uh, talking no, about? No, no. It, it had a four, it had a regular forward okay. hinge door. So the interesting thing to me about the Veloster, so where it fits, not only in Hyundai's lineup, but in the market, because a colleague had been like hemming and hawing. He had an original Veloster, traded it for a GTI. And then when his lease was up on the GTI, he was like, should I go back to the Veloster? And he was like, nah. And, and he wound up in another GTI, which broke his rule of like never the same car twice. But it's just it was interesting to see that decision process is like, that's the buyer that I think this the Veloster is sort of aimed at it's it's a little different it's kind of neat it's a little sporty especially if you get the the turbo it's not your standard elantra right it's a it's a it's a sort of unique car it's an enthusiast yeah, it's, it's, de it's definitely got you know a harder edge than like the elantra gt uh it's got the same same powertrain <laughs> in it uh you know it's the the 1.6 liter turbo with the seven speed dual clutch gearbox you know so it it, it feels the same but the the exhaust tone is definitely a lot more aggressive. The you know the suspension tuning is different. You know it's definitely got a firmer ride than the Elantra GT. Not not harsh, mind you, but 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 definitely firm. If you have particularly rough roads, you might want to you know consider something different. But you know it's <laughs> it's not bad. You know it's not it's not going to beat you up. You know the interior is is you know really nice. You know it's along the lines of what we've come to expect from modern Hyundai's. Uh, you know so it's really well executed. Everything looks good inside, looks high quality. Uh, you know, there's some hard plastic surfaces, but at this price point, you know, starting at I think about twenty one thousand, and the one I had, the the Turbo Ultimate, was only twenty nine. Uh, so really? yeah, so you know, wow. that's you know, if you're if you're looking for you know an affordable, fairly quick, you know, decent handling little coupe, you know, that can also you know be used you know to carry a couple of friends in the back seat. We wouldn't want to take a long road trip that way, but. You know, to, to go across town and go out for dinner, it's fine. Depends on the friends, right? That's true. I mean, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're putting Dan in the back seat, you know, you can drive right. across the I'm, country. It's going to be fine. I'm stubby. Be fine. I could fit in the cargo area. Yeah. I'm like 410. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, I love the name of this car. It's like a failed Spider-Man villain yeah. in this car. <laughs> like it's so... It's so spunky, but I, I have to ask, this is something I, I always want to know when it comes to a car, how are, how are the electronics in it? How is the integration? Like, does it have car play? It, like, I feel like no aspect of a car gets dated more quickly than the stereo. Yeah, well, Hyundai, so, Hyundai, Hyundai yeah. was one of the first major OEMs to incorporate both Android Auto and CarPlay. So they've got both in it's there. True. They've got it across their entire product lineup and also the Kia and Genesis models 
as well. Both have um, Android Auto and CarPlay support. And you know, even the stock infotainment system. You know, if you if you're not using if you're not plugging in your smartphone, the stock infotainment system is not super sophisticated, but it's well executed. It's a fairly simple interface, easy to navigate around. You know, it's got a touchscreen display. You know, like uh, like other recent Hyundai's and and increasingly cars from from most major automakers. The screen kind of sits up on top of the dash tablet style, which is good because it gets it up closer to your line of sight. So when, when you are glancing over at it to check the maps or something else, you're not taking your eyes too far away from the road. Uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of the trend that everybody's moving towards. Uh, but it's still, yeah, well, I it's hate still, that trend. Still well I gotta within, say, I hate it. You don't like, <laughs> oh. you don't like having the screen up top there? I'm not a big fan. It's like every time I get in a Tesla, it's like I want to be there in the driving experience, right? And I have a iPad Pro in my face as I'm trying to drive. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I know that's just well, me. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's know, not know, just you. This is, this is yeah. not as massive, you know, as a Tesla screen. I mean, it's it's an eight inch screen, <laughs> right. so oh, okay. you know, it's yeah. it's a it's a reasonable size screen, you know, and. It's not you're not trying to do everything through that touch interface. You know, um, yep. you know, it's got physical controls for the climate control, a, a, a rotary volume knob, uh, you know, all, all the all the stuff that it should have. You know, and it's basically just the audio system, the nav and some of the settings are in the touchscreen interface. So you, you don't really have to do, use the touchscreen very much. And as I said, it's got both Android Auto and CarPlay support built in there. So, you know, it's it's a it's a really good deal. It's a, it's a Hyundai, right? It's so yeah. it definitely you know it, it sort of ticks all the boxes. And I didn't catch was it is it because the the previous one you could get with a manual. Can you still get this one? You, with you the manual? can you can get this one with a manual, um, even yes. even with yeah. the turbo. Yes. And I've, I've, yeah. driven, I've driven the turbo and the manual, and it's also an excellent combination. Uh, it's a slick shifting six speed, you know. And if you don't want to do the shifting, I mean, if you drive, you know, and, he- and do a lot of commuting and heavy traffic, the DCT is a great option, and it's got paddle shifters, which are quite responsive, and they'll they'll you know it'll you tap through and you know select the gears pretty quickly with that thing. See, I mean, who would have thought the company that came to the U.S. Uh, or came to North America with the Pony <laughs> and then the U.S. with the Excel <laughs> would build an enthusiast car? And that's exactly what that is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, it's a car that's quick enough to have a lot of fun with, but not so quick that, you know, you're likely to get yourself into a lot of trouble. Done a nice job executing the design, and you know they they even have a two tone paint job that was done on purpose, unlike a typical Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Ooh. sick burn. Ooh. That's a sick burn. All right, oh, all right. What about God. you, well, Dan? Or, no, or you, you know what? Bring? I actually, yeah, I want to talk about um, spending your own money because I, I, I mean, <laughs> I really respect that. I haven't spent. Well, I mean, I spent the bank's money on a car a while ago. Um, yeah, yeah. But you. you you have ponied up for like okay cars. okay so I I gonna tell you guys I will save like my I'll tell you the story of my Boxster another day I'll save that. okay I'll save that but I will tell you the story about walking into a Porsche dealership with a hundred thousand dollars cash should we name names buying buying that car uh, I'm sorry uh, yeah it's just the one right here in Dedham uh, what's a Westwood okay. Porsche okay. right, right here in Dedham um, so uh, so. 
after I talked to you guys, last time I did wheel bearings, I had just bought my 981. This was a, it was a used Porsche Cayman. It was the base model. I liked this car a lot. It had some problems. I really hated the electronics in it. I think all the Porsches from that generation, just the electronics in them have really dated very quickly. Like you can see every pixel on the screen and CarPlay isn't integrated. The navigation is just not great. So it was a great car. I loved everything about driving it, but I hated the electronics in it. So I went through all those service records on the car to verify that all the service had been done correctly. And I found out that the guy that owned it before me had skimped on a bunch of things. So I took it to a specialist and I was like leaving the specialist. I had a perfect 981 with everything in it. And this, I'm not going to swear, but this, this child learning to drive <laughs> uh, plowed into the back end of my 981. It did over $20,000 worth of damage. So it had it. a little ding in the, ben- in the bumper then, right? Yeah, right. right. No, this was, I was really surprised it didn't uh, break the crumple bars in the back. But it was, I took it to like a Porsche, um, you know, specialist, a body specialist to fix it as perfectly as you can. And even after that, I could still hear wind noise in the back of it. And I could just tell that this was a car that was going to have problems like five years from now, right? So even though I loved the car and I felt like I got a good deal on it, uh, I decided to really do that childhood dream where you walk into the dealer and you're like, I want that car. So I was fortunate with my husband. We had some money uh, through some you know, stuff come to us and we had a hundred thousand dollars in the bank and I walked into Porsche and I ordered a Cayman GTS the same way that you order a pizza Good for you. I've got to tell you, it's a really awesome. I don't experience. know about you, but I've never bought a hundred thousand dollar pizza. Can you imagine <laughs> what kind of a pizza yeah. that would be? It would be really oh good. It would be really, really bad, <laughs> like a lot of it. Uh, but no, it's, it's a really weird experience. Like, so one of the things when you buy a new Porsche for like in that manner, they will not stop sending you the stupidest stuff to congratulate you <laughs> for buying a car. Like they will mail you like a, a metallic printout of your name on a credit card <laughs> to hold in your wallet with your vehicle identification number in it. They mail you special books saying, Oh, you are a driver of extraordinary taste. And it's like you're you're looking at it and you're like, do billionaires fall well, for this yes, car? Oh, like, yes, absolutely. Like, I mean like, I, I think that yeah. like the whole point is like your best customer is an existing customer, like your best repeat right. customer. So they're just trying to groom you for the next purchase now. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense. Um, so as far as the car itself, this is like the maxed out ultimate Porsche Cayman, which is, if your listeners don't know, the Cayman is pretty much the Boxster with a, a hard top on it. This generation of Boxster slash Cayman is very controversial because it's the 718. Um, they got the flat six of the previous generation, and to kind of keep up with fuel standards, they turned a flat six into a turbo four. Now, personally, I love this because as an engineer, it's like, oh, you're getting more power with and better fuel efficiency with less engine. But a lot of people just really love that sound of a flat six. Yeah, Dan, you should come ride with me sometime in Boston. I think you're going to agree with me. The like criticism of the sound of this car is BS. I, you know what? I can 
can think of no better way to sort of test that than just, you know what? Take the tunnel to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. South Boston. We'll go right? out there. Yeah. Well, they fixed it a lot with the GTS model of it. Like, I'm I'm there with the criticism of the S model and the base model, but the GTS, they adjusted a bunch of stuff. And it's just this angry, like, they're, they're constantly as you're driving it. Um, I got every single performance option you can get. I got torque vectoring. You know, we got, it's just, it's a fantastic car. And, I didn't understand this until I bought it, but the the tragedy of buying a car with that much power is you just can't use it on a civilian street. Oh, yes. Ever. This is is why I drive a 28-year-old Miata. Right. 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 That's it. And I find myself reaching for the keys of my much cheaper Porsche Boxster a lot more because you can push it as hard as you want. You can beat the hell out of it and you won't control. But but here's, and that's why we advocate like sort of the, the slow car fast versus fast car yep. slow thing. But yep. I, I don't know if you're aware, but in Palmer, yep. which is not too far, it's out on, yeah. on the Mass Pike, there's uh, Palmer Motorsports Park. It's new and oh. they, they have track days and stuff. And I think you can basically, you can rent it out for a little private session for about a thousand bucks or something. Which is, Oh my God, like, that sounds amazing. It, it sounds expensive, but when you consider what you're doing, it's not that much. So it, it's a cool place you should visit it with your car. I should definitely I mean, do when, that. When you have a car I, I, like that, yeah. track days are absolutely a, a great way to, you know, a, a great investment, you know, because you can take the car out and exercise it in its natural environment, you know, where you're not. Um, first of all, you know, there's there's no um, law enforcement with radar guns, you know, monitoring you all the time. You're you're not mm-hmm. around, you know, other people. Um, other perhaps less skilled drivers so much, you know, or, or drivers who are not expecting so much speed uh, and you can do yeah. it in a, in a safer environment. Yep. No, that's it. That's it. And you know, I have to say like with my job, like running for office, you drive constantly, you're in the car constantly. And I really feel like, you should enjoy that time. Do you know what I mean? If you're like, if you're driving from three different events, all through Massachusetts, like it makes me so happy to drive an awesome car that gets me in the experience because so much of my job is talking to people and making that personal connection. So being able to be there with the machine like that, it's a, it's a very special experience. I think all three of us would understand that. Yeah. Well, and so the thing that I've always noticed with Porsches, especially too, is like, yeah, so a hundred thousand dollar car, it sounds expensive and it's certainly it's premium, but that's, it's good stuff. You know, (laughs) you're getting something for your money and it's, it's, it holds its value as well. You know, if you if you look yep. at the, this is the PCA classifieds, they're they go for money, and and yeah. so you like you you've spent yes you've spent some money. It's it's indulgent to a certain degree, but any new car is indulgent to a certain degree, and so it's it's not a terrible purchase in that sense. It, it's not an investment. I don't don't think cars are good investments, but it's a it's a purchase, right? You've bought a, a thing. You know, some people buy houses for seven or eight hundred thousand dollars around here. <laughs> so it's the same thing. I, I can't drive my house like that. So I mean, yeah. I think it's it's worth it. It's cheaper than therapy. It was it was on my bucket list. And yeah. now I've done that and now I can buy more reasonable cars going <laughs> forward. So what about you, Dan? Where are you driving? Uh, so it's funny, uh we're talking about uh performance cars. I 
was initially kind of disappointed. Today is swap day, so they swapped me out um, of uh, X2, which was lively, and I have things to say, but I'll write it up for a review. But they left a Mustang GT convertible. Oh. Right? And automatic was, or six-speed? Automatic. Okay. And I was very, very disappointed uh, until until I drove it. A, it sounds fantastic because it's it's got that the adjustable exhaust stuff, and even normal sounds excellent. And so I went out and got some stuff for lunch and came back and I parked it in the garage. And so I made sure I put it in track mode in the garage. So the exhaust is as open as it can be. <laughs> and I'm just revving it before I go, pairing the phone. Uh, it's just, it sounds good. And I was a sound guy, so whatever. Uh, but Did you the, put it in good neighbor mode before you came home? No. No, no, no. I had my 10-year-old. Like, yeah, I wanted him to hear me come up the street. <laughs> he came running out of the house and I'm, you know, he gets close to the car and I rev it up and frighten him. It was great. It's the best thing ever. You know, Mustangs with manuals and the V8, like, that's a, it's a good car. And I was like, ugh, oh, the automatic, the, like, boomer special, right? Like, I'm living, <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially in a convertible. Like, I did two things I don't yeah. really like in Mustangs, convertibles and automatics. And, yeah. you know, like, as a convertible, it's, it's it for, especially for the price, this one's, you know, it's about 50 grand. So it's got some options and some toys, but it's, it's not that expensive for what you get. So I was surprised at how solid it feels and the independent suspension is is good it it has you know i think it's a little softer than the coupe gts so there's slightly not not very much you know i'm impressed with how how disciplined the ride is without beating you up you know i i expect a mustang convertible to sort of skitter through turns and stuff like that none of that this was like this was luxurious but also that was one of the advantages they got from uh on the new mustang from going into independent rear suspension is they 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 made this the structure a lot stiffer and the suspension mate got softer so you have better ride quality and better handling yeah and i mean it really really pays off i'm i'm impressed um, and you know, again, the engine, I have no complaints about the coyote, but the 10 speed automatic is fantastic. <laughs> it's great. Uh, really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, you're still driving an automatic, but it's in the right gear generally at the right time. It's quick to react. Uh, it'll downshift as you, you decelerate and stuff. So it's, it's right there. I was, and I didn't even play around with modes. So I'm impressed with that. Uh, I think they, they've done a fantastic job. You know, this, this Mustang was a big departure uh, from the S197, which itself was a big deal uh, for several years when it was out. Um, but this is the first one to have independent rear suspension, and they made a lot of changes to it. It really became a like a sports coupe or a GT versus just a pony car, which is, you know, economy car with a big engine. This one really it has a lot of sports car credibility. It can really, it can hustle. Um, it's not sloppy. It's well put together. It's comfortable. It's, you know, it's just still a Mustang. So it has some of that edge too, but I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I'm, I'm impressed. Like the fact that I was just like not going to enjoy it. And then I was like, holy crap, this is really good. Really well done. I I think that speaks for all of the work that went into it. And it's going to be like the last car Ford makes. Yeah. (laughs) So, so this is why I don't understand about the Mustang. So my, my husband and I have completely opposite car tastes. I'm like, you know, like if you look at my cars, I love the Cayman, the Boxster because they're all in on handling. Whereas my husband is a, he's a muscle car kind of guy. Like we spend a lot of time on bring a trailer looking at old, <laughs> you know, Corvettes and his car is a, a 2017 Challenger. So 
I look at the Challenger. I understand those aesthetics. Like it's trying to make an old new car. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that's what it looks like. For me personally, and maybe both of you disagree with this, when I look at the Mustang, I it feels like it has the same problem with this generation Corvette, where they're not trying to take the styling in a direction that it feels like they're adding more swoops on it and making it fancier and adding a new grill here. But there's not an overall design language or feeling for the car that I think is timeless. And I think the Camaro fails at this, this generation too. I, do you all, how do you feel about that? Do you disagree? Uh, I mean, personally, I, I have to disagree to, to, to some degree. Um, you know, they, when they were designing this generation of Mustang and, and, you know, for 2018, it, it got a mid-cycle refresh. Uh, so they, yep. they updated the, the front fascia and, and the taillights a little bit, but the overall shape remains the same. And, you know, when you, when you start looking at a lot of, a lot of the details, you know, there, there are a bunch of details that have been carried through Mustang since 1964, you know, that, that keep recurring, you know, recurring details like the three bar taillights, yep. the forward leaning grill. This, this generation, they went back to the, the fastback style, although, you know, on the convertible, obviously you don't get that, but there's a bunch of these details. And, you know, I think what they, to me, to my eyes, you know, I think that they, Combine those details, you know, in a in a more modern way than they have. You know, the previous generation Mustang, the S197 that Dan mentioned, you know, really had much more of a retro feel to it. You know, looking, you know, yeah. it looked much more like the the 1969-70 Mustang. Whereas this one, you know, has those those touches in there. You know, when you look, you'll see these details. You know that are callbacks to Mustangs, you know, throughout its hist- throughout the car's history, but it still has, you know, a more, I think it's a modern take on that, that same yeah. idea. Yeah. I mean, the, I think that's fair. The, yeah. the, the previous generation that came out in 2005 was, was cleaner. Uh, initially it got a little messy when it went through its own mid cycle refresh, I think around 2010. Mm-hmm. Or 11. Yeah. Yeah. It was 10. Um, and so it was a, a more sort of pure design this one's a little bit in between. So they tried to evolve it and keep some of those elements of the original Mustang, like Sam said. And it's not its not purely successful, I think. I, I look at it sometimes and I think it looks great. I really don't like it in a convertible. I think it looks awkward, especially with chrome wheels, uh, which is what this one has. But as a coupe, I think it's its its pretty good. And, and you have to, you, you wind up in this conundrum, right? You've got 50 years of a particular design idiom, a, a style. How do you evolve that? It's the same thing that, that Porsche deals with, with the, the 911 sort of being their icon. Yeah. And, and before that, the 356. It's nice to see them try to get away from it and, and yet not lose it entirely. And I, I don't know. It's not. I'm, I'm sitting between you guys. I, I don't think it's 100% successful, but I don't hate it. <laughs> no, it's nowhere I, I, near. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent successful, but I think that they did a lot right with it, and I think they yeah. did more right with it than GM did with the Camaro. You know, well, the I Camaro think, you just can't see out of. Well, yeah, like, that's that's, yeah. that's the yeah. fundamental problem. Oh, it's terrible Camaros. to sit in. No, there's a like I remember reading a review from my husband's Challenger, and it's like third place in sales third place in our hearts well, well actually like, the, the i understand thing about that the challengers, for the, yeah, you know it yeah its sales have actually been pr- getting progressively better over the last several years and it's actually second now 
in sales. Oh, really? Oh, is yeah. it? Of course. Oh, but that's good. So the thing with Over the, the Camaro. The, the, I mean, yeah, the, the Challenger's great, right? It's a little bigger. It's a little softer. You can still get it with a V8. You can get it with a manual with that. And it, like, it, you can get it with all-wheel drive. It's the Challenger GT. It's comfortable. It's it's more of a Grand tour. It's more of a, you know, it's, it's less capable than both the Mustang and the Camaro, but it's it's no slouch. You can still hustle it. You can have a good time and, with it. And it's you can get benign. it with a Hellcat. Right. You yeah. can get it with a Hellcat. Yeah. It has a bigger trunk. Yeah. Like, it has a bigger back seat. It's, it has its merits. And I actually, I really like the Challenger styling. I think that, like, that's a car they, they shouldn't try to change because they got it so right. Like, they don't have anywhere to go with it. Uh, yeah. But that's okay. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I gotta say it drives horrible. It drives, and maybe well, it's because it, it, like I'm driving com- my yeah, Boxster yeah, and then I jump a into a Challenger, Cayman, you know, it's, right? It's yeah, something totally different. It, but like you floor on the accelerator, it's like a one second delay between accelerating and it kicking in. And every time I turn, even if it's like ten miles an hour in a school zone, like a ninety degree turn, I'm asking myself, am I about to flip this car over five times? So I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's just not your thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely, definitely. You, you, you need, you need to right. get Frank to uh, to go for the uh, the uh, the Hellcat Red Eye uh, next time around. Oh, you don't think the Demon? You know, you don't the think Demon, the Demon's Demon? out of production think... now. I mean, you can oh, buy a used it? one, but you can't you can't buy them new anymore. They only they only oh, made three thousand Demons. We the, missed the, our the shot. Red, the Red Eye, all, you know, is almost as quick. It's it's only a mere seven hundred and ninety horsepower, um, but you know, it, it'll do. Yeah, that's just not enough. My 10-year-old is all excited about the demon, and I keep trying to explain to him, like, no, no, no. The demon's only for one thing. It's a drag racer. It doesn't turn. It's yes. like, you don't want that one. You want the Hellcat. And I was explaining to him tonight about supercharger wine and how that's the best thing ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's, oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, all right, let's move to topics. What what should we talk about first? We wanted to talk about the, the Supra, and we also wanted to talk about Lucid and Electrify America. I want to talk about the Supra. I'm right. psyched about this story, Dan. Okay. This right. is a great story. Um, uh, yeah, well, take it away. I mean, talk, tell, us, <laughs> just tell us about it. So the headline, I, I swear, I want to work my entire career and become as good at writing headlines as Patrick George is over <laughs> Jelotnik. He's had to practice <laughs> a while. I mean, he has touched my God. Yeah. Um, so the headline about this is, like your parents, uh, BMW and Toyota haven't spoken in years. And they're talking about the, the development of the Supra and the, the BMW Z4. So basically about, I think it was four years ago, uh, these two companies, they came to a, uh, a production agreement that both of these cars would be based on the same platform. And they, you know, they came to an agreement, like this is how big the wheelbase is going to be, these are going to be the parts that we're going to share. But then, according to the press that they're putting out there, they kind of went their separate ways for development, which... Personally, I'm not sure how much I believe that, but if it's true, I think that's really awesome. So I have two cars that are uh, completely separate from each other. I have never understood the hype about the Supra. Like, I get it in Fast and Furious. Like, I love that car. But the Z4, like, that's... I don't know. I... I want that car to succeed so much. I I love BMWs. I my dream car is a Z8, and I don't know. I'm really psyched for this one. How how do both of you feel about it? I, I mean, I, well, go ahead, Dan. I was just gonna say, yeah. like, I've this the Super in the '90s was one of those cars. I don't I don't like the whole 
scene now where they're all modified and, and whatever, but the yeah. Supra in the 90s, when it was like selling alongside the FD RX-7s, I, I mean, that, that car was was a thing. It was a beast. Uh, <laughs> and like, I just, I had, I think I had a poster of it on the, on the wall. Really? One of the only Toyotas oh. I had. Yeah. I mean, it just. Wow. Because the Supra, like, it spent one generation being like a hot rod Celica and then like the 88 to 93 Supra was like this three quarter scale Japanese Camaro. And then this one came out and it was just like, Holy yeah. crap. <laughs> and so like, I get the super enthusiasm and I get the Z4 enthusiasm too. Like last week we were talking about the Z4 on the, on the show uh, as well. And you know, I think my, my take on it is like good that they're not talking. Like they've got the basic structure yeah. like they'll have different flavors. It's not going to be like the, um, the BRZ 86, uh, you know, F, I don't even remember what the Cyan version was, but FRS. like all flavors. Yeah. FRS. Like those cars are all basically the same thing. The differences are very subtle. So I, yeah. yeah, basically the badges. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's literally. Yeah, it's like the, the Fiat. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, even even the 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 Fiat one twenty four and Miata, you know, have completely different sheet metal. You know, and and in fact, they have different <laughs> engines. Uh, you know, the oh. the Fiat you know uses the Fiat one point four liter turbo, and and the Miata uses the, uh, the Mazda two liter. So they don't even have hmm. the same engine in them. Um, and the and the you know so the the chassis is the same the 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 cockpit is the same but all the sheet metal is different between the two. Yeah. Cool. So like, what's your take, Sam? Like, it, are a do you believe that they haven't talked to each other, or uh, and, and also like, do you think it's going to work out well? Uh, I mean, I I think that that is probably somewhat of an exaggeration. I think you know probably yeah. the the development team you know that was doing the chassis tuning and everything else. I think. You know, those guys probably didn't talk to each other much. You know, once once they set out, you know, laid out the hard points, laid out the suspension and everything else uh, and got the basic architecture settled on, then there there actually isn't really much need for them to talk to each other. You know, the the the, the team doing the Supra's uh, chassis development, they go off and do their thing. You know, they're, they're working with the same basic component set. You know, they have the same basic dimensions, but. You know, they get different spring rates. You know, there's all, all kinds of, of details that are going to be different from each other. And they're, you know, they, to some degree, they're, you know, the parts would probably, you know, the under, you know, the main mechanical parts would, pro would probably have some interchangeability, but they're, they're not the same parts. You know, in this case, you know, as with the, the Fiat and the, the Miata, you know, they have completely different sheet metal. They do have the same powertrain, which is a good thing. They both have, in you know, the same inline six-cylinder engine. And, you know, anytime you have an inline six-cylinder engine, that's a good thing. You know, so, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I think, you know, I think the, you know, the development engineers probably didn't talk to each other. But along the way, I think that there were. There were, there were still conversations among various teams, you know, as they went through doing the, the structural crash testing, things like that, the, the simulation of that, you know, because I think that if there were any issues along the way, you know, they would have they would have been in contact with each other because anything they did, you know, would probably affect both cars. So I, I don't think it was a complete separation for four years, but I think it hmm. was, you know, kind of partial. So can you help me understand something, Sam? Because this is, this is what I don't understand about this process. So if, like, Porsche in the 90s with the Boxster and the 996, uh, 911, 
I, that's when they pioneered part sharing across their line. And this is why so many Porsche cockpits look the same. I understand that for a car company and within a line, right? Like you can, you don't have to develop all these things. You can recycle whenever you can. It's good for the consumers too. I get that. What I don't understand is like, um, like if Lotus is going to Toyota and saying, we want to put your engine in our Lotus so we don't have to repeat crash testing and don't have to do that. I understand those cost savings. I don't understand what the economic advantage is of BMW like deciding to share parts for this Supra. I, I fundamentally don't get that. Can you help me understand yeah, that? Yeah, so, you know, whether you're building a thousand cars or a million cars, the, the cost of development is roughly the same. You know, it doesn't it doesn't okay. matter how, you know, really what your volume is uh, within reason. And so for, you know, for modern cars, the cost of development, you know, is very high, you know, to meet all the all the emission standards and fuel economy standards and crash safety standards, you know, in all the different markets. There's a lot of costs associated with that. And sports cars are inherently niche products. You know, you're never going to have, you know, Toyota's never going to sell anywhere near as many Supras as they are Camrys and Avalons and, and Corollas. So, you know, in order to justify building a car like this, they they needed to find a way to. And the same thing goes for BMW, by the way. You know, I mean, for, for BMW, you know, the Z4, is, you know, accounts for a tiny proportion of their overall sales. You know, their their big volume sellers are the three series and their SUVs. Uh, even yeah. the five and seven series are you know comparatively small uh, in volume compared to those other vehicles, especially the X3 and the X5. So, you know, for them to do a new Roadster. You know, it made sense, you know, if they can combine with Toyota, you know, and spread the development costs over twice as many cars, then, you know, the the overhead, you know, they save there's a lot of money to be saved. And when you're talking about the, you know, the parts that are shared are in this case, you know, primarily parts that are under the skin that most customers are never going to see. They're never, you know, most customers are never going to realize that you have common suspension components, a common structure underneath here, a common engine, you know, common powertrains, common electrical architecture. The electrical architecture, for example, is something that costs a lot of money to develop on a modern car. You know, the airbag systems, all, all these pieces that you never see and touch are the ones that are shared among these vehicles. And so there's there's huge cost savings, you know, to be had from, you know, if you can even double the volumes and you can get closer to you know having a profitable pro- pro- profitable program that way, you know, for high volume products, there's enough volume, you know, that, you know, at least within your brand, you know, you share components across those. You don't necessarily have to go, you know, to combine with other companies to share so much of that stuff. But for for low volume niche products like this, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, I can see. You that. know, I also wonder if either of these cars would exist if it weren't for the partnership. Maybe a Z4 would, but I don't think the Supra. I, really I don't think exists. even the Z4 would. I don't yeah. I, you know because I mean they they actually discontinued the the previous generation Z4 two years ago. Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. you know its sales had been in decline for for some time. But that's because they haven't updated <laughs> it. Since yeah, but I mean, if, yeah. If, you, like, if you look, if yeah. you look across the industry, you know, at cars like that. You know, with very few exceptions, you know, sales volumes are nowhere near 
where they were at their peak, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, and and even even in the 1990s, you know, sports car sales are are they just don't sell like they used to. You know, people today people are more interested, you know, for example, with Alfa Romeo in buying a Stelvio Quadrifoglio than buying a Giulia Quadrifoglio. Well, even you know, though I mean, they're mechanically almost identical. If our true wages had actually risen since 1972, it might be a different story. <laughs> well, um, yeah. you need the family car, <laughs> so you get the Stelvio. Yeah. Uh, uh, but no, I, I think you know they both have a lot to learn from each other too. You know, Toyota has its its efficient and and high quality manufacturing system, which I'm sure BMW is already well aware of the Toyota production system. Because um, they also make well, everybody cars, in the world but... except Tesla is aware of the Toyota production system. <laughs> it seems that way. Yeah, um, oh. you know, I'm going to send him my my dog-eared copy of the machine that changed the world. Um, but also, you know, Toyota for years just caught no end of flack about how their cars are appliances. They don't drive with passion, and you know, they they really have been trying to change that to the point where the last Camry I drove, a it looks pretty good, and and b it it drives Whoa. pretty well. So, <laughs> wow. yeah, I mean it's you got you got to give Akio Toyota a lot of credit. If it wasn't for him, this car almost certainly wouldn't exist. Akio Toyota is a real car enthusiast, yeah. um, and you know even though the, the the vast majority of Toyota's sales volume are still relatively unexciting cars they have they are a lot better than they were five years ago ten years ago yeah uh, well and yeah. like i think too like you have to be you have to look at it as more than just a car that's going to make money right like at, at a certain point some of these programs you do them because they serve to lift the rest of the brand yep and you go you know what i don't need to make a profit on that i don't want to go completely in the red but like you know where am i comfortable losing some money on that program so that it lifts the other program. Like, will it generate enough interest? Will I sell more 86s because of the Supra? Maybe like, that's not a bad thing. Uh, yeah. So, I, you know, there's a lot of things to consider. I think when it's my turn to run a car company, I will have those decisions to make. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, yeah, like you mentioned the 86. I don't think that's a great product. I don't really? understand that product at all. No, I just don't get it. Um, what, what don't I you don't like know. about it? It's, I, I, I guess it's like, I want, I want Toyota. I want every car company to have like an entry level sports car. Like when I was a teenager, my first car, my first new car was a Honda Prelude, 1994 Honda Prelude. And I loved that car so much. It was like an aspirational car that you could buy for like $30,000 back then. And it's like, if you look at Honda today, you're like, what is the sports car that I can buy for Honda? It goes all the way up to the NSX, right? So if you're going and looking at the 86, it's just, I don't see the quality there where you're getting like $30,000 worth of car. It's like, I would rather go buy a better car that's used and has depreciated some. I just, it just doesn't feel as aspirational in the same way. No, it's true. It's not, I, I would certainly not call the 86 uh, or the, the Subaru BRZ aspirational. But on the other it hand, depends they, on your aspirations. Well, that's true. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but, but you know, I think they, they actually are a lot of fun to drive. Yeah. You know, and even though, you know, I mean, 200 horsepower is not a huge amount. It's, you know, well, it's, from it, two it's, liters, it's, more, it's more than enough to have a lot of fun with on the on public roads. I mean, if if you're not like looking for a car to take to track days, you know, if you want something yeah. to have fun driving down a country road, you know, on a Sunday morning. 
that's that's a great way to do it. You can have a lot of fun with yeah. that car at relatively modest speeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that that's true. I I find them to be not as comfortable as I would like, and and the way they deliver that power is a little disappointing. Once you start wringing its neck and because it'll rev all the way out to eight thousand RPM, and you you have to do that, and then then you can have a little fun. Well, the the, be- the beauty of it, you know, is it's that it's a Subaru Boxer, and so there's a lot of stuff, a lot of parts out there that you can put install in that car. You know, you can you can you can transform that engine, you know, in a lot of different ways if if you're so inclined. That that car reminds me of the the early Porsche 924s, where Ooh, it's yeah. it's sleek. You know, it's I think it's very good looking. Not as powerful as everybody wishes it were. It handles pretty well. It's one small block away from greatness. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it just needs a V8. It's all it needs. I, it's also worth saying, like, this is, you know, adult Brianna looking at this car. I bet if I were a teenager today, I would be looking at this car very differently. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So maybe that's it. And, you know, maybe it's just not your speed, too. Like, there's there's that. Yeah. Like, I, I prefer yeah. the Miata. Not, if I'm not, spending not everybody kind of needs to drive the same car. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the yeah. variety is the spice of life. Yeah. All right. There it is. Okay. And with well, that let's, cliche. Let's, yeah. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about Lucid. Cause a, I want to just point out how really, really pretty their uh, cars are. Cause they're just yeah. they're really neat looking. They keep making moves with funding and uh, this latest move with electrify America to build a, a, a charging uh, infrastructure. They're quickly moving to displace another electric car manufacturer upstart <laughs> in in our collective psyche you know they're, they're going to build out like 2000 ultra fast chargers uh, in the next couple of years not even by the end of june of 2019 so i, I mean not sam you, you fast, plucked this story yeah. uh, okay all right the, all before right. i can continue to screw it up like <laughs> let's 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 talk about it all right so for, first of all you know we, we first talked about lucid almost two years ago uh, you know i had a briefing at the la auto show in 2016 from uh Peter Rawlinson is the CTO and, and uh, you know, formerly of Tesla. He led the development of the Model S <laughs> and Derek Jenkins, who's the head of design at Lucid. And, you know, they gave me a look at the car before it had been public re- publicly revealed. And we had a, an interview earlier this year with, with Peter as well that we had on the show. And we'll include a link in the show notes. And last week, they finally got their the funding. They've, they've been trying to raise funding in order to build their factory. They've been working on development of the car, the Lucid Air. But they, you know, they were struggling to get funding for the next round to actually build out the factory. And, you know, they finally closed the deal last week, got a billion dollars in funding from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, which uh, Elon had been counting on to to fund, you know, his uh, taking Tesla private. They opted instead to go with Lucid. I did not know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, they they did make the Saudis did make a a five billion dollar investment. You know, they bought they bought shares on or not five billion, uh, a couple of billion. They bought five percent of Tesla earlier this year on the open market. And, um, you know, Elon, had, you know, when he was trying to take Tesla private last month, he had hoped that they would be one of the investors that would come in and, and fund that deal. They opted not to. You know, they, they did they did go with Lucid last week. But the, the wow. news, the news this week, you know, is about Lucid's deal with Electrify America. And yeah. for for those that aren't familiar with Electrify America, it's a new EV charging network provider, uh, kind of like ChargePoint and EVgo and Blink. But this is this is a new company that was spawned out of the the Volkswagen diesel settlement. So as part of that settlement, Volkswagen agreed to 
spend directly invest two billion dollars over four years in EV charging infrastructure, and also there's another two point nine billion dollars that's part of a separate fund that they're they're putting in, and that money will be spent by various governments and uh, other agencies on various remediation efforts, including building out charging infrastructure for, to support electric transit buses and that sort of thing. There's a whole bunch of projects that that's going to fund. But the, the two, this $2 billion is directly for Electrify America, and they're, they're building out a charging network, uh, a high-speed charging network. And unlike you know, what ChargePoint and EVgo and others have done, where they've largely concentrated their efforts on the coastal areas where the EVs already are, and there's not so much charging infrastructure in the middle part of the country, Electrify America is following the, the Tesla pattern with building out a network that spans the entire country. And by middle of next year, they will have 500 charging st- 500 locations up and running or in, in the process of being built. And all of those will support DC fast charging with anywhere from four to 10 charge points at each, each location, depending on how much capacity is available and what, you know, what they expect the demand to be at those locations. And they will, they will be the first to support 350 kilowatt charging, which the Tesla superchargers currently only go up to 120 kilowatts. So wow. uh, the, first, the first EVs uh, was, that will actually support 350 kilowatt charging is the, the Porsche Taycan uh, that's coming out uh, first half of next year. And, Excited about that yeah, one. And that, that'll say. get you an 80% yeah. charge in about 15 minutes. And last week, uh, we talked about the Audi e-tron Quattro, which was revealed in San Francisco last week. We talked about that on the show last week. You know, Audi announced that they're for Quattro e-tron buyers, they're going to include uh, 1,000 kilowatt hours of free DC fast charging at Electrify America stations. And now uh, Lucid has announced that they've also, they're also doing a deal with Electrify America to support their vehicles. I don't think that they have said how much charging customers would get or did they not sure but the lucid customers you know once once the cars go on sale in probably about 2020 perhaps as early as uh, late next year but more likely sometime in 2020 they will also be able to use the uh, the ultra fast charging uh, from uh, from electrify america stations so what else is going on with lucid in terms of building up their their sort of themselves as an automaker and their their sales pipeline and stuff. Are they going to actually have a successful launch? I see a lot of, there's a lot of automotive veterans that have kind of joined up um, with the company and, you know, clearly they have the money now. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so are, are they going to, you know, where are they, I guess, in, in those plans and, and how could you get one if you actually wanted one? In 2019, when it's ready to go, um, yeah, actually, it looks like production's. I was just rereading the article. Production's going to start in 2020. You can pre-order them. You can you can order you know place a pre-order with uh, with Lucid now. You know, I don't know. You know, how, I'm not sure. I think it's five thousand dollars to pre-order one. But they're, you know what they're doing is they're focusing on you know for the time being on the high end, you know, and the Air is a very very premium car, you know, it's a, it, and in fact you know the interior is much more premium feeling than a than a Tesla, you know, while Teslas are expensive, they don't actually feel that way inside for the most right. part. Nope. Nope, uh, feels like a Lego yeah. car. <laughs> um, the 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 Lucid Air is a much more premium feeling car, and you know so they're you know they're following a, a similar 
kind of pattern though. They're going to start at the high end and focus on the high end for the for the time being before, you know, at some point they'll eventually make more, you know, something more affordable. But they're I think uh, if I recall correctly, uh, when I last talked to Peter, you know, they're they're planning on you know, doing a similar model because because they're not targeting any time in the near future getting anywhere near the kind of volumes that Tesla wants to do. They want to they yeah. want to remain a more premium brand uh, for the time being, and so you don't f- for that you don't need as big of a, a dealer network and support network. I think they're planning on doing a combination of some franchise dealers, but I'll have to double check this franchise dealers and company owned stores. Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess this is what concerns me about Lucid. I mean, you look at the car, it's utterly gorgeous. It's it's almost like a it's like a Tesla but refined. Like the aesthetic is very similar, but I think it's just more beautiful like every part of it. What we're seeing with EVs though is like Audi getting into the market, right? Like Audi is a brand as a certain locked-in consumer. And Audi is a luxury brand. And we've got Porsche. They're moving into the space. We know that Aston Martin is committing to 100% EVs. If someone came to me asking me to invest in this, as much as I like this car idea, I, I would expect that the current luxury brands are going to eventually eat their lunch. Because when you buy a car, it's not just about, it's about the relationships you have with that dealer. Um, It's about the parties that you get invited to from that network. It's like a, there's a whole host of stuff and you have these other car brands that are luxury. They've just been running this game for longer. Yeah. um, You know, that, that is always a risk. I mean, the, the reality is that the vast majority of automotive startups fail. Well, I mean, the vast majority of startups in period fail, but especially in the auto industry, you know, because it's, it's such a capital intensive, uh, you know, it's such an expensive business to get into. And the likelihood is that, you know, Lucid will fail and Faraday Future and Byton and most of these other startups will probably either go bankrupt or get absorbed by some other OEM. And that's just the reality of the situation. I mean, that's what will probably happen. But hopefully, you know, one or two of these companies, you know, will break through and and, you know, at least at the very least, find themselves a niche at the high end of the market and have something, you know, some kind of unique offering uh, for customers. You know, if they can if they can create a great customer experience, you know, and that's that's a crucial part of being a premium brand is the customer experience. Like you said, you know, everybody's getting into the EV game. Uh, You know, every manufacturer, every existing manufacturer is going to be making both high end and and, more mainstream EVs uh, in the next couple of years. And I think the the number that we had, you know, in the next the next five years is going to be something like 300 new EVs launched globally. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a lot of competition. Uh, it's going to be tough. You know, and I think, I think if Lucid, you know, kind of, if they take a pragmatic approach and don't try to be, you know, don't try to be the next, you know, GM or Toyota or Volkswagen, you know, anytime in the foreseeable future and focus on, creating a brand that has something special about it uh, and and focus on serving their customers with something with a unique product, then they may have a chance. 
Um, you know, they've certainly yeah. got they've certainly you know lined up a bunch of funding now. So hopefully we'll we'll see what they can do with it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think that um, you know that may be the mistake that has has bitten Tesla is their their at least stated goal right is to be the next GM. Uh, they they really built up the hype about that thirty five thousand dollar Model Three, which is still you know not here. If they stick with being a premium product, if Lucid does, uh, I find that buyers not not that I am one myself, but buyers of very premium cars like to have the thing that nobody else has. So if it's premium and somewhat exclusive, you don't see one every day. There's sort of a built-in market for that that will pay a lot for it. So, yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I can see if they, if they manage to stay in their lane for a little while, they'll they'll do okay. If they smartly manage their money and they learn from manufacturing and they figure out how to make it cheaper and smaller and you know roll it out on a on a smarter basis, I, you know, and and this is not to take pot shots at Tesla, but you know, I think that because we do that every week. So. Yeah, we do. Uh, it's hard you know, not to. It's hard not because to. We, yeah. yeah, it's like a wayward child. You know, you, you look at it, right. you go, you've got so much potential. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I feel bad. It's like, you know, I have occasionally criticized Tesla on my Twitter, but it's like, we want him to succeed. Yeah. We want EVs to succeed. Like what Tesla has done is really woken up the automotive industry and it's exciting and important. And that's why it hurts so much to watch a man child. <laughs> well, you know, and, 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 in, and in fact, you know, they, to, to a degree they uh, have succeeded, you know, and you know, the, the story yeah. I wrote on the e-tron last week, I started it off with saying Tesla has won, not, you know, yeah. not, not in the context of actually succeeding themselves as a company, but in terms of driving the industry to electrification, proving that, that electric vehicles can be, you know, appealing vehicles in their own right, you know, regardless of what the propulsion system is and, you know, bringing, bringing the whole industry along. And in, in that respect, they, they have achieved what their original goal was, which was to to transform the industry. Whether they remain a part of that industry over the long term is anybody's guess. But you know, they at least today, you know, look, you know, from from the vantage point of you know September 2018, looking forward over the next three to five years, you know, every manufacturer is going to be producing a bunch of. I think really appealing electric vehicles at a, you know, basically across the entire price spectrum from, you know, more affordable vehicles all the way up to, you know, to premium high end vehicles. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I think, you know, not to take another shot, Tesla, <laughs> if you've listened to some of the stories about, people that have Teslas that they no longer support them. There's a fantastic YouTube video about a guy that's learned to repair his oh, yeah. Tesla and with taking it apart because of the long-term um, like infrastructure to give you parts, to give you like information about how to repair it. It just doesn't exist there for Tesla. And I don't think it's going to like with my Boxster, for instance, you can still buy every one of those parts new. If you wanted to, you can buy it used. You can buy it from a junkyard. There's an entire like army of people. They've done anything you can think of with one of these cars and that infrastructure 
exist to help you fix it or get someone to fix it. That doesn't exist with Tesla. It's not going to exist with Lucid either. So I think that's going to be a really big leg up that traditional car companies are going to have. No, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, luckily, um, I think that guy's actually in Massachusetts. One of the things that he talked about was was that we're a right-to-repair state. So yep. we actually get a little bit more information, and it's not much, um, yeah. than, uh, and, and part support than anybody else, I think, in, in the country when it comes to Tesla. But, they, you know, they've automakers, on the whole, have locked up as much as they can uh, some of it's the intellectual property with the, the software that runs the things, the liability issues. Again, w- when you start fiddling with the software, they can behave unpredictably and they don't want the, the liability on that. So they, they lock things down as much as they can. You need to have the expensive interfaces and tools and stuff. I don't I don't see that changing well, no matter what. Yeah, the right, right, to, right to repair only comes into effect, you know, if you actually own that product. If right. you don't own it. Yeah. That's a that's whole different story, right. and that's that's why of, I right. think most automated vehicles, when we get to those, are never going to be sold to consumers. But we'll yeah. we'll talk about that next time. Right? You just you just Love described it. trains. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we didn't get to uh, talking about Nissan adding Android Automotive like Volvo or uh, the BMW profit warning or automated driving regulations that were on our list, but we can leave those to the next time. Because <laughs> we're, we're bumping up against an hour, and I think that that's a it's a good tight podcast. And uh, you know, I, I think at this point we should uh, we should say thank you to Brianna for joining us again. I'm super envious that you were able to just buy a Porsche for cash. <laughs> it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. It's a good feeling to talk about cars. By the way, like everyone's been asking me all week to ask about the mess in Washington. That's depressing. So it's good to be able to come on and uh, talk about something I love. We're glad to have you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.